Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Grace and peace to you. So, uh, we launched a series on evangelism last week. And to begin, our concern was with the gospel itself. And the reason why is because how we understand the gospel determines how we are going to evangelize or if we should evangelize at all. So we need to start with the gospel. And my goal was, of course, not to redefine the gospel, but to look at it from a different perspective. And I made three points last week. I'll just rehash them here quickly. The first was that the gospel is for us, but it's not about us. Meaning the gospel is for our salvation. It's for the forgiveness of our sins. It's for our reconciliation that we might be brought to God in restoration. However, that doesn't mean it's about us. What it's about is the story of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, and we looked at various sermons from the Acts of the Apostles. So that was the first point. The gospel is for us, but not necessarily about us. And the second point is that the gospel is a royal proclamation. Remember, euangelion means good news. It was essentially, in the ancient world, a political announcement. Kings and emperors would bring some news to their community and call it euangelion. Hence, the gospel is a royal proclamation, specifically that Jesus, the man nailed to a cross, has become the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The shorthand for the gospel, as you find it, is simply the phrase, Jesus is Lord. And lastly, the third thing was that the gospel is public truth, meaning it's not a sort of inward, private message, right? It's not something uh, simply for your uh, personal life, but it's something that's true for all the world. It's a historical fact, as we believe as Christians. Jesus did these things in history, and he's been exalted to the right hand of God. So this morning, what I want to do is build on those points. Now, in the first two-thirds of the message, what I want to do is consolidate things, taking what we learned last week and then expanding upon it by looking at what Paul says here in Romans chapter 1. And then the last third of the message, what we'll do is see how this changes the way we uh, evangelize, specifically how we present the gospel. Okay, So the outline this morning is first the royal gospel to the royal mission, and then sort of how we can recalibrate things around that. So let's begin with the first of those, which is the royal gospel. Paul's introduction here in Romans, these first sort of uh, seven verses, they serve as a summary of the entire letter. You'll find that the Apostle Paul specifically does that. He'll sort of put in a nutshell um, his primary theme, and then he'll develop it into maturity throughout the letter. And his primary theme here, of course, is the gospel. So he'll say a little bit later on in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So here then, in verses 1 through 5, he introduces the gospel giving us in a condensed form what he will then develop throughout this entire letter. So let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 2. They're there on the screen for you. 
He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now immediately, we see that the gospel is not something that comes out of the blue, so to speak. Paul says it's of God, and that the gospel is something that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have a backstory. To understand the meaning of the gospel, we have to, have to understand the story of the Scriptures. The Scriptures set the stage, and they develop the drama, raising the fundamental questions to which Jesus is the answer. Now, of course, someone can understand the gospel apart from knowing the scriptural story from Genesis to Malachi um, in its, without understanding that. They can still under the, understand the gospel, but not in its true depth and richness. It would be like sort of dropping into a movie at the climactic moment. Sure, one could understand what's going on. They could get the gist of the events, but they're going to misunderstand the meaning because they need everything else that sort of prepared them for that moment. Now, in the same way, the scriptures, and by that I mean the Old Testament, provide the necessary lead-up to Jesus so that when Jesus comes on the scene, we have an understanding of what he's come to do and the problems that he has come to address. In fact, as just a bit of an aside, um, there are many heresies that start with this specific problem, where you just ignore the Old Testament for the life of Jesus. Um, think of Nazism. All right? You can get an Aryan Jesus when you get rid of the Old Testament. And you can get an Aryan gospel when you get rid of the Jewish Old Testament, so on and so forth. All these different um, heresies or, or, or half-truths come into the picture when we don't understand and keep the story of the Old Testament as that necessary background. So that leads us to the next verse, which is uh, verse 3. Paul continues, he says, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So the gospel, the good news that God has had in works from the beginning, chiefly concerns his son. David says the gospel of God, or excuse me, Paul says the gospel of God concerning his son. As we said last week, the gospel is certainly for us, but it's not necessarily about us. It concerns Jesus. It's about him, and it's the story of God's son and what he has come to do. And in order to understand the good news concerning God's son, we need to understand King David and the promise that God made to him. Because, as Paul says, Jesus was born of a descendant of David. That is, God's son, when he came into the world, i just point out to you quickly that the word born there is not the normal word for born in the Greek, but it's more like became. So when God's son was, came into the world, he was born into a very specific lineage with very specific expectations attached to it. He was born into the line of David, of the tribe of Judah. Now, 
Who was David? And what makes him so important to the story of Jesus, such that without the promises of David, we're going to misunderstand what Jesus came to do? Now, I have to shorten the story a little bit. But David, as you know, was Israel's greatest king. He was a man after God's own heart who would carry out the will of God unlike anyone after him. And God promised David, sort of in the middle of his reign as king, he promised him a dynasty. This is 2 Samuel 7. He promised that one from David's lineage would reign as king forever. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13, I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter on your own. God says to David, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will raise up your descendant after you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the promise made to David was essentially a promise to raise up a universal ruler and to grant him a universal kingdom. Now from this point on, the promise that God makes to David, Israel's history becomes a history of kings. You'll find that after this promise to David, you continue to read 2 Samuel and then 1 and 2 Kings. Everything focuses on the kind of king that was reigning at the time. And everything hinges on how this king reigned, whether it was good according to God's will or whether it was evil not according to God's will. And so from this point on, as I said, Israel's history is a history of kings. And the question is, in which king will this promise be realized? And for a moment there, you almost think it is with Solomon. Solomon is... King David's immediate son, he builds the temple. He has this amazingly prosperous reign such that even the queen of Egypt will come and pay homage to him and all marvel at the wisdom of Solomon. Yet Solomon marries foreign wives and his heart is turned away from the Lord. And his prosperous reign ends in dishonor. He leads the children of Israel away from God because he sacrifices to these false gods. And ultimately, the Old Testament comes to a close, and this promise to David is not realized at all. The nation, immediately after Solomon, underwent a civil war. And the kings on both sides were generally terrible, with a few exceptions. So Judah in the south and Israel in the north were both conquered, one by Assyria, the other by Babylon, and they were dragged away into exile. And this line of kings descending from David was broken. And the hope for the promise was extinguished. But God, in the midst of this, he had his prophets. And what you find is that when Israel is sent into exile and just before God raises up his greatest prophets... Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And they are the ones to tell Israel that things are not over. God will keep his promise, and David's kingly line will rise again. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah says, 
there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's dad. When the prophet Samuel went to go anoint a new king, God said to Samuel, go to the house of Jesse, and there you're going to find the one you're looking for. And out came Jesse's firstborn, who was tall, strong, and handsome, and Samuel thought, that's him. And God said, no, I've rejected him. And one by one, they brought all the sons of Jesse until there was no one left. And lastly, there was the ruddy, overlooked shepherd boy who God called to become king. And here, Isaiah says, there is going to come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The line of kings that was promised to David is like a tree that's been cut down. And all that remains of this former glorious line is a burnt and charred stump. But its roots ran deep. From this stump, God would cause a shoot that's, that's like a leafy stem to arise, and that stem would become a branch. Look at this promise from Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. God promises to make good his promise, even to his rebellious and lost people. He will send them a wise and righteous king. And when he comes, he will do justice in the land. But the people wait, and they wait, and they wait. God makes these promises, and a king never really arises. They get sort of uh, vassal kings who are under the rule of greater kings, but never anything like is promised. Until, away in the most unlikely of places, to the most unlikely of people, God sends the mighty angel Gabriel to a daughter of David, as our passage says, a descendant of David, the Virgin Mary. And he says this to her, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And that takes us back to our passage in Romans. Paul continues, verse 4. Speaking of God's Son, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here Paul says that Jesus was declared as the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. So quite naturally, when we hear that phrase, the Son of God, what we think of is the Trinity. We think of God the Father and His Son, God the Son. Now, but maybe less known is that that title, the Son of God, is also a title for the King. Uh, if you look at Psalm 2, we'll actually look at it just a little bit later, God says, um, He says, uh, He installs the King as His Son. Psalm 89 declares the king as God's firstborn 
Son. Acts 13, Paul takes both of those passages and uses it to demonstrate that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, Christ the King. So in other words, what Paul is saying is that the resurrection is God's declaration to all nations that Jesus is King. Now think about it. There were many descendants from the line of David, many people who could have claimed to be the king, right? But there was only one of them who was raised from the dead. And this, the apostle Paul says, is what declares him to be the son of God. And that, in sort of the largest scope possible, is the gospel. God has come good on his promise to David. Jesus was put to death on charges that he was David's son. Above his cross hung the sentence, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Just before that, when he rode into Jerusalem, what were the people shouting? Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest to the Son of David. Here's the promised King. And then he winds up on a cross, and the charges against him, the sentence was that he was the King of the Jews. The people meant it in mockery. This is not the king of the Jews, but God meant it in truth. And then God raised up that crucified man from the dead, and God declared to all nations through his resurrection that this one is indeed the king, and that to him belongs dominion and power and might forever and ever. Amen. This is the one by virtue of his resurrection. The promises to David have been fulfilled. Now, We turn from the gospel, in that sense, to the mission. Do you see how when we reframe the gospel in royal terms, in terms of king and kingdom, suddenly it reframes our mission. And it brings a new clarity to our role. And what is that role? We'll get there. But the gospel about a universal king and a universal kingdom issues in a universal mission. And that's the first thing to know. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So you see that the scale of the church's mission corresponds to the scale of Jesus's rule. Our aim The call that lies upon us is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles or among all the nations. And that's not a new development, but it's something that has been foreseen by the prophets. This promised king from the line of David would not be merely a local king ruling over a relatively small patch of land in the Middle East. He would be a universal king to whom every people and every nation would be subject. It runs all the way back to Genesis with the patriarch Jacob and his sons, long before King David came on the scene. Before Jacob died, he prophesied over his sons. And concerning his son Judah and his descendants, he said this, Genesis 49, verse 10 on the screen, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The obedience of the peoples. Or more explicitly, in Psalm 2, 
which we already mentioned, God says to the king, Ask of me, verse 8, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So God installs his king upon Mount Zion. Again, read Acts 13 to see how Paul interprets this. He installs his king on Mount Zion, and then he says, Ask of me. It's all yours. I give you all of it. Now, there's many other passages we could turn to, but perhaps the central one is that great vision in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees a series of terrible beasts that symbolize or or sort of uh, picture the kingdoms of the world. And eventually these beasts are slain and Daniel sees a figure, one like the Son of Man, he says, ascending into heaven. He rises up into heaven and this Daniel says of him, Daniel chapter uh, 7, verse 14, that says, To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. To all the peoples, nations, and men of every language, or that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In short, when Jesus is raised from the dead and declared to be the Son of God in power, the one to whom all these promises pertain, he is granted a universal rule. He reigns over heaven and earth as the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Revelation 5.5. Remember, John sees this scene in heaven in Revelation 5. And God pulls out this seal. It's something like a title. It's it's a scroll, rather, with seals on it. It's something like a title deed to the earth. It's like the history of all mankind. And it's sealed, and no one can open it. Not the elders, not the angels, not the mighty ones. And so John weeps. No one can do anything about it. No one can bring redemption until, he says, stop weeping. Because the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. He has triumphed and overcome. And therefore, all things must in time bow before him. As we read, those who are in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth will come to acknowledge his rule and will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' universal reign provides the rationale for our mission. It all belongs to him. He is the one who is dead and has been raised. And it's our task to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations without exception. All the world has to be evangelized and baptized. All idols have to be torn down. All worship given to the one God who in these last days has sent his son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, into the world for us and for our salvation. That's the rationale for our mission. Now, let's clarify that a bit. It's important for us here is the apostles' phrase, the obedience of faith, because it shows us what we're aiming at here. Jesus' reign, his kingdom, is not like any other kingdom. It's not advanced through military might and arms. 
right? He doesn't say, okay, now go take the world and here's a couple tanks to get the job done. It's not through legislation, right? We don't legislate Jesus' kingdom into existence, nor is it through social pressure, but through proclamation. His kingdom takes ground through the continual announcement of the good news. Jesus has died and risen. So in the first place, because we are proclaiming, we are calling the nations to faith. We are calling them to trust in King Jesus. Now, why is it that we're calling them to faith? Well, the answer lies in the nature of God, in the nature of the kingdom that he is bringing to bear upon the world. The foundation of God's throne, the psalmist says, are righteousness and justice. God is righteous and just. The kingdom that he is establishing is righteous and just. But we, on the other hand, are unrighteous and unjust. And therefore, this kingdom, this announcement about what God is doing can at first only appear to us as bad news. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There's no place for us in this kingdom. There's no spot for us. He says later on, Romans 3, uh, 20, there is none righteous, no, not one. So at first, it's bad news. It's not a good news that this kingdom is coming, and therefore, we have the call to repent. And in fact, in this scheme, the only one righteous is the king. If you look at the role of a king in ancient Israel, his job was essentially to order the kingdom according to God's order. So that meant the king's job was to rule according to righteousness and justice. He was to cause righteousness to flourish among his people. Read Psalm 72 and how it depicts the king's actions there. He judges the wicked, he judges the oppressors, and he vindicates the afflicted. Now in this case, the king is the only one righteous, but it's his job to make righteous, and that's what he does. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over for our transgressions, and he was raised for our justification. The righteous king, in his death and resurrection, makes us righteous. He gives us entrance into his kingdom, and this is not something that's accomplished by works of righteousness. It's not accomplished by our own effort. It's something received by faith. Jesus has triumphed over sin and death and hell, and nothing remains for us to do but simply respond in faith and trust. And doing so, he then distributes to us the spoils of his victory. King Jesus has overcome sin, and therefore, on that basis, he has the authority to pardon us. Moreover, to make us righteous altogether. King Jesus has conquered death and plundered hell, and therefore he says to us, Revelation 1.8, I have the keys of death and Hades. He opens the door to life and no one can close it. And though we die, he promises that we shall live. King Jesus has cast down our enemy, the devil, and he makes powerless his schemes against us until he himself is thrown into the lake of fire. 
King Jesus overcomes the world. Fear not, I have overcome the world. And though his people go about like strangers and pilgrims, they will inherit the kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. All this comes from the king and his victory. It's not earned, at least on our part. It's a victory freely distributed to all who call upon his name in faith. So it's the obedience of faith, and as Paul says, the supreme character of this faith is obedience. The gospel summons is ultimately, it's not a summons to go to heaven when we die. It's not a summons to have a meaningful life. The gospel is a summons to the obedience of faith. That is, to give one's allegiance to King Jesus. And that entails repentance or simply abandoning other loyalties. That is, leaving behind ideologies and commitments and sinful habits that run contrary to his rule. Those are the very things that his kingdom is at war against. And therefore, to give our allegiance to King Jesus is to break with competing loyalties. I think the analogy that works best here is uh, re-socialization. Re-socialization is the process by which one's values and beliefs and their norms are re-engineered. So, for instance, boot camp is a great instance of re-socialization. You go in as a normal citizen, and you go into a completely new world with new ways of doing things, new ways of everything, down to the way you fold your underwear, and you come out as a new person. It's re-socialization. Immigration is another good example. You leave behind your home nation and your home culture, and you land in this new land, and you have to learn to adopt its ways, to live as a new person. In the same way, when we announce that there is a king and a kingdom, we're summoning people to break with their other loyalties, to break with their former way of life, and to commit wholly to the king and the ways of his kingdom. Hence, Paul says, the obedience of faith. What does Paul say, or what does Jesus say, rather, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew to his disciples? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's all we've been saying about King Jesus, right? He says, all authority, it's mine. That's the first part. And then he continues, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. There's a threefold all there. Are all there. Jesus has all authority. And therefore he says, Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. The nations are to be made disciples and then they're taught to observe the commands of the king. They're taught to give their allegiance to him and to live out this new way of life. So do you see how this reshapes our understanding of mission? The good news of Jesus is not another religious option that we launch into the market. We're not salesmen knocking on doors offering new cutlery or cleaning products or solar panels things that you can add to your life. Jesus is not another option. That's not what we're saying. Rather than adding the gospel into an ever-growing list of products to satisfy people's lives, what we're saying is there's been a revolution in the heavens and on earth. We're not saying that there's a new option out there, 
But we're saying that the fabric of reality has fundamentally changed. The king has assumed his throne. This is what Paul says in Acts 17. He says, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So God has installed a universal king. He is claiming a universal kingdom, and therefore we have a universal mission calling people to trust in this king, his death and resurrection on their behalf for their sins, and then we're calling them to allegiance. Serve the king. Serve his kingdom. So, having put a finer point on things, we'll, we'll draw things to a close here um, with how this bears on our practice of evangelism. Now, sometimes uh, things need to be recalibrated the scope on a rifle or a multimeter or anything like that. And the same goes for our practice of evangelism. Our handle on things needs to be tested against the standard of the Scripture and then adjusted as necessary. And that's what we're going to try to do now. Um, and we're going to try to put a typical gospel presentation up against what we think the Scriptures are teaching us. So I want to suggest four things, beginning with the order of the gospel and how we present it. Now, I'm using caricatures here, so I don't mean to offend. That's not my intention. I just want to sort of teach, and it's helpful to have something to compare against. So the order of a typical gospel presentation is first, the offer of forgiveness, and then second, the acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship. So it goes something like this. Jesus offers you forgiveness. Accept that forgiveness. He died for you on the cross, and then now he wants to be king of your life. So you should get the Bible and you should learn and that, that kind of thing, right? Now, that's fine as far as it goes. But a better way to do that would be to reverse the order. Begin with Jesus' kingship and then move to forgiveness. So it goes something like this. Jesus is king. God raised him up from the dead. And he installed him at his right hand as the Christ and as Lord of heaven and earth. And because he's king... Because he's conquered death, because he's defeated sin, now he has the authority to forgive your sins and the, power, and the power to deliver you from its grip. Now, it might seem like I'm splitting hairs here, but there's a big difference between those two presentations. In the first scheme, we're the king makers. We make Jesus king, not over heaven and earth, but our own lives. He died to forgive you, and then you make him Lord of your life. In the second scheme, what we're saying is that God has already made Jesus king through his death and resurrection, and we're simply responding to that. There's a king. He offers you forgiveness, so repent and trust in him. Now, the reason that we favor the second presentation will become later, come clear later in time is because it takes Jesus' reign out of this subjective personal realm. He just is king. I'm not making him king over anything. I'm simply acknowledging what is already true, acknowledging the way things are. So we want to change the order, king first and then forgiveness. Now, the second element of our gospel presentation that we need to retune is the decision point. Apart from this royal element of the gospel, king and kingdom, 
our presentation of the gospel becomes skewed. The obedience of faith gets turned into mere belief. That is, not trusting and giving our allegiance to the king, but sort of agreeing to a set of facts. Now, what I'm not denying here is that we're saved by grace through faith alone. I'm simply contesting the idea that faith is mere belief um, or a mental assent to a series of propositions. This has sometimes been called easy believism. It was a target that people took against it a long time ago. The decision point is not simply, you know, just, just believe and then you're fine, right? You never have to do anything again. You don't have to, you, you, you're just easy believism. But it's the obedience of faith that Paul says. It's less a call to agree to a series of statements and more of a call to enlist, to give your allegiance to Jesus. As one commentator put it on our passage, faith is not a mild assent to a collection of maxims, but an active commitment of one's life. Obedience is the true measure of a person's faith. So lest I step on any landmines here, let me just say obedience and faith are not the same thing. However, they are inseparable. We're calling people to a kind of faith that entails obedience, not simply believe and then sit on your hands, which is typically how it goes. And the third element of the gospel presentation that needs to be retuned, and I don't quite have the right word for this, is the scope of, the, of our presentation. A typical gospel presentation is something of a loner gospel, um, and it goes like this. You need to trust Jesus so you can receive personal forgiveness. Then you're free to follow Jesus as Lord. And then after that, you should find a church to help you do that. Now, the problem here is that the scope of the gospel is reduced merely to its personal significance. It's about the individual receiving forgiveness and then pursuing discipleship for themselves. And in this scheme, the church, that is, fellowship with other brothers and sisters, is supplemental. It's optional. The point is your personal relationship, and then you sort of get with others to help you with that. It's not an essential part of the faith, but, you know, it's there if you need it. Now, the solution to this over-individualized gospel is not to go the opposite direction, right, and to depersonalize the gospel. We never want to give the impression that the gospel is not personal, that it doesn't address the deepest longings of our heart, because it does. The gospel calls for personal repentance, it calls for personal responsibility, and it invites us into a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. We're not wanting to undermine that or denigrate that at all. Instead, the solution is to frame the gospel in wider terms. It's not merely about me and my personal relationship. It's about the Lord Jesus and his reign over heaven and earth and his kingdom. And I'm not a lone citizen soldier, but I've become a part of his army of witnesses. I've been enlisted into this kingdom. So when we present the gospel, we're presenting it in a way that entails the Christian life with it. Now, the fourth and final element of our gospel presentation that needs to be retuned is simply the purpose of the gospel. That's what one is saved for. In most gospel presentations, the purpose is simply to go to heaven. And it sounds like this. You need to trust Jesus so when you die, you can be with God forever in heaven. And as it stands, again, that's not too bad. That's actually right on the money. The problem, however, is 
the cultural baggage and the direction of that. The biblical story ends not with us escaping to heaven, but with heaven coming down to earth. Revelation 21 and 22, we don't jump ship and go to heaven. The new Jerusalem, God's very throne descends to earth. The story, the direction is heaven coming down. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven as the prayer goes. So what we're inviting people into, what we're saying they're saved for, is to dwell in a renewed heaven and earth where God's presence is transparent to all reality. We're not inviting them to leave and then sort of playing into the hands of all these weird notions that we have about what heaven is and isn't. So there's a universal king. He has a universal kingdom, and we have a universal mission. And that's how we proclaim. There is a king, and he died and rose again for you. And he loves you. And he's inviting you to be a part of his kingdom, the new heavens and the renewed earth. So repent. Leave it all behind and give your allegiance to King Jesus. Trust in him and follow him and serve out his mission here on earth. And it sets us up an entirely different direction. And so I invite you now as we close Uh, our sermon this morning and turn our hearts to the Lord's Supper, I just want to invite you to remember what these elements are all about. That God's Son has been born a descendant of David, real flesh and real blood. That the King died on a cross and rose again that we might have life, that we might be ushered into his kingdom, that we might be forever with him. So I invite you forward now to come receive these elements and I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment.